Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and as you're turning there, if you would please rise as well as we honor the public reading of God's Word. This morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, as we read here of the teaching of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the church is to be salt and light in this world, Lord, help us so to be. Father, open up our eyes to see the reality of these things. Open up our ears to hear. Lord, so often we recognize that we fall short that we do not act as salt and light as we ought. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of this, that you would help through the preaching of your word, help us uh, so to be led to repentance and so to act better, that our good deeds might be put before the world, that the world might glorify you. And so, Lord, we do even ground this prayer, not in ourselves, even as we see our failings, but in your own glory. Lord, act for the sake of your own name, that in the church you might be glorified and that many might see and come to worship and praise your name for you are worthy, O Lord. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that is true about the doctrine of creation is that it is very good. Everything that God does in creation is perfect. And we see this particularly in Genesis chapter 1 at the very end, where God declares at the end of the sixth day that all things are not just good, but even that they are very good. One of the the implications of everything being good in creation, something that really sets apart our doctrine of creation from the unbelieving view of the world and its, and its origins, is that if God is the creator, and if he's created everything to be good, then the way in which God has created it, the nature of the thing that God has created, tells us something about what it's supposed to do and what its purpose is in life. And so we have uh, hands. Hands are meant to hold things. They can touch. They can feel. If you try to use hands for other kinds of things, that something other than its very nature as it was created, it's not going to work well. Uh, eyes have been made perfectly to, to fulfill the function and the purpose of sight. And if you use your eyes for sight, it works very well. If you try to use your eyes for other purposes, you know, eyes are very fragile. They can't uh, do other kinds of things. But the thing that they were made for, the thing that it is by nature because God has made it for a purpose, is in fact very good. And this 
understanding of something having a purpose that corresponds to its nature is not just true of the things that we can see in, in terms of uh, the creation of our bodies or uh, plants, trees, animals, uh, you know, the solar system, any of those sorts of things. It's also true spiritually. Uh, we were all made in this way. And even if we think about the church more broadly, we're not just the creation of God through, uh, through Christ, but we're actually the new creation uh, through Christ, through, through the resurrection of Christ, the new creation has been brought in. And through then his ascension and his calling of, of all of his people through the spirit, we have been uh, gathered in and are in fact a new creation uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are a new creation, then, then we have a particular nature that affects our purpose. God has not only made us with a certain uh, purpose to fulfill, a certain function and role to fulfill, but he has even made us in the new creation as the church for particular ends. And this is what, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of here. What is the church and how does the nature of the church influence what we are supposed to do? If we do not act according to the way in which we were made and even remade in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to fulfill our function. And like an eye trying to hold things or uh, a hand trying to um, you know, walk or something like that, we will not be able to actually fulfill the purpose that God has given to us. And here, here in particular, the Lord Jesus Christ describes the function and the nature of the church. The church is, by its nature, salt and light. Now, this idea of the church being salt and light, uh, there are many ways in which we can describe the nature of the church. But here in particular, the Lord Jesus Christ is giving us the nature of the church as the church relates to the world. As the church relates to the world. Uh, the church can be many things with regard to uh, it's, the church's relationship to Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. As our relationship is to the Father, we are sons of God. But in terms of the church's relationship to the world, the church is salt and light. And this nature, the, the, the way in which the church has been created, uh, this description of the church's function does influence then what we are to do in this world. If we do not act as salt and light in the world, then we are not fulfilling the reason the church, in fact, was established by Christ in terms of our relationship to the world. Now, even as we think of this, that, that here, the church is described as salt and light, it's important for us to remember even uh, the context. Remember, this description of the church being salt and light in the world comes immediately after the Beatitudes, which end with a description of the people of God being persecuted. In this world, there will be many who will persecute us. And you are blessed, the Lord Jesus Christ has said, if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. If you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed because uh, this is the same way in which the prophets of old were treated. Now, that's saying something already about the way in which we're going to have to interact with the world. The world is going to persecute us. And as the church is persecuted, how is the church to understand its role with regard to the world? Uh, even in the midst of being persecuted, we are still we are still to be salt and light to the end that the world, even as it persecutes, yet comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and even glorifies the Father uh, in Him. It's important to remember that this this idea of being salt and light comes in the context of a teaching of the persecution of the church, and so. 
the Lord Jesus Christ sets out this great, this great teaching about the nature of the church, what it is to be, uh, using, again, two great metaphors, the church is salt and the church is light. Now, the way this passage is structured is there are the two metaphors that are given in verses 13 to 15 to describe what the church is. And then in light of what the church is, then in verse 16 has a command. The church is salt and light in certain ways. And because the church is that, then you must do particular things that are mentioned in verse 16. So that's the way we're going to look at this passage. So in verses 13 to 15, we're going to look at what the church is. And then in verse 16, what the church does. So what the church is, what the church does. The church is, again, salt and light. And we'll take those uh, in turn. So look with me again then at verse 13 in particular as we consider the ways in which the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is salt. The church being salt. Now, the idea of, the, of salt is, in, in terms of the use of the metaphor, is simply that, that salt uh, preserves things. In the ancient world, this was uh, common. You know, you'd, you'd salt something and it would, um, you know, they didn't have refrigeration in the same way that, that we have or freezers, that sort of thing. So you could use salt and it would preserve things from uh, going bad, from decaying, from being corrupted. And then salt also served the function uh, of seasoning. Uh, it was something to make something that was uh, perhaps bad or bland tasting uh, to make it taste good. So there were these, this particular, there was a particular use uh, of salt. And here Jesus is speaking of uh, salt losing its saltiness, as it's translated in some ways. It loses its ability to preserve and loses its ability to season. Now, it's not the point of the metaphor is not really to say whether or not this is impossible. With some of the things, um, some of the, the ways in which the metaphor is used, it does, in fact, appear that it is to be impossible. You know, city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, something that's impossible by nature. But regardless of whether or not salt even can become unsalty, the point is that if you were to have salt that was that could not it, uh, improve the flavor of something, and it could not preserve uh, a kind of meat or, or other kind of food from decay, then it would in fact be worthless. And if then salt is unable to perform the function for which it was made, then the only thing that can be done for the salt, just as anything that's lost its ability to perform its function, is that it's to be thrown out. It's to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And so this is the first metaphor that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to describe what the church is. The church is to be salt in the world. That is to say, it's, it's to have a preserving effect in the world. If the church in the world is unable to preserve the world, then it has lost its saltiness. It's not performing the function. It's unable to perform the function for which it was made. We are to be a seasoning uh, to the world uh, as well so that it becomes uh, acceptable and pleasing uh, to God himself. Now, if this is the case, if the church is supposed to be then uh, have this preserving and seasoning effect uh, on the world, the the idea is that the church would be uh, prevented from from going into moral corruption. Uh, That's part of the function of the church. Now, if this is the case, there are two particular things that are important for us to keep in mind about things the church must do in order to be functioning as salt in the world. And this is particularly important to remember as we think of the context of of persecution. If the church is salt in the world, then it can never retreat from the world. It can never retreat from the world. We, we cannot live a kind of monastic lifestyle. It was something that was uh, common 
in uh, you know the the late part of the ancient church, uh, the, you know monastic orders were developed, and the idea was you know you're just going to separate yourself off from the world. But notice, salt has no ability to preserve if it's not actually permeating the thing that it's meant to season and uh, and to to salt. Uh, you actually have to have the salt permeate not just even one spot even that's useless if you if the if the salt were all gathered together into one spot it has no ability uh, to actually prevent the corruption of the whole there needs to be a permeation into all of the thing that's being salted in order for it to, to have its effect of not corrupting uh, other things and so this is the way the church is to be every area of society must be influenced uh, by the church if it's not influenced by the church, then the world will in fact fall into moral corruption. The purpose of the church is to be salt in the world. Now, it also means, so that the, that's the first implication. The first implication is that we must actually permeate the entire world. We cannot retreat into ourselves. The second implication is that the church must always be distinct from the world. The church must be distinct from the world. Salt is not useful if after you put the salt on something, it tastes exactly the same. If there's no distinction between the salt and the thing that's being salted, then there's, of course, no reason to use the salt in the first place. The, the, the world and the church must always be distinct. We must always show ourselves to be distinct from the world. Now, one of the things that happened, particularly in this, this most recent century, in the 20th century, when as we saw that um, in the terms of just the history of the church, the state of the church, basically every mainline denomination fell off. Uh, every mainline denomination denied the gospel. And the reason was, it was because the church began to look more and more like the world. Rather than the church telling the world the ways in which it was straying from the word of God and bringing the world to account, the church rather became the mechanism for the world to justify all of its practices. The church basically gave the rubber stamp of approval to everything that the world did. And insofar as that happened, then the church was not separate from the world. It could not per perform its function of being salt in the world. When the church is persecuted, these are the two great temptations that the church has. We can retreat into ourselves and not address the world out of fear of persecution, or we can, or we can just simply compromise with the world and tell the world that what it's doing is okay. We can, in, in either of these ways, we fail to act as salt within the world. Now, it is very ironic as we think about particularly the second way in which the, the, the church fails to act as salt, that when the church compromises with the world, this is often uh, done so as to avoid persecution. It's to avoid, you know, the, the kinds of negative effects that are going to come um, from being opposed within this world. But notice here, the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching, if the salt cannot actually act as salt in the world, it's not that the salt will remain unharmed, but it is in that situation that the salt is going to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. It is actually when the, wor when the church compromises with the world and becomes just like the world that actually the church is in the greatest danger of even being destroyed. And this is because... Uh, Men can only do so much, so much to the church. Uh, God will ultimately defend the church. But here, Christ is saying, if you are not distinct from the, from the world so as to be able to act as salt in it, then you can be sure that, it, that you will be trampled. God himself will, will see to it that that is, in fact, happening. And so the church is always at most danger, in fact, uh, not when it is... Um, not when it is, uh, 
you know, in fear of man because of what man will do to the church, but rather when it compromises with the world and uh, is unwilling to be faithful to God, that is when it is in fear, in danger because of its very nature. It is not meant to, to, to act like the world because of its very nature. That is when it's in uh, the greatest danger of being cast out and trampled by men. And so, the first metaphor is this then. The church is to be salt in the world. Because of that, the church must always be faithful to God, cannot retreat into itself. It must always address the world with the gospel in order to preserve it. Now, the second metaphor is the light of the world. You are the light of the world, it said in verse 14. The church is light by its very nature. Now, the, now, Jesus goes on to explain this in terms of uh, two um, examples of, of what, how to apply uh, this particular metaphor, two different figures uh, to apply the metaphor of the church being light. The first one is related to, to the church as being a city which is set on a hill. And again, the idea of a city that's set on a hill is um, the only reason to build a city on a hill is certainly to give light to everything around it. It's certainly not to hide the city. You would, if you wanted to hide a city, you would not build it uh, on a hill. And even Jesus is saying here, it's not even possible. If a, if a city is built upon a hill, it cannot be hidden. By its very nature, by the way in which it was made, it is unable to be hidden. And then the second one is similar, the, the idea of a light that's being, that's being lit and it's put under a, a basket so that nobody can see the light. It's completely counter to the purpose of the light. The reason to light the lamp in the first place is to give light to the entire house. And so nobody would light a lamp and then contrary to the very nature of that lamp, put it under a basket. You would, of course, put it on a lampstand. The, the, the function of the lamp is determined by its nature. If the church is light in the world, then it cannot be hidden. It must, in fact, shine uh, in the world. Now, this first, looking a bit closer at this first figure that's used, the idea of the church being a city set on a hill. Now, this is something I, 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 that is particularly related to the church because of the church's relationship to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the uh, center of God's worship, the place where God had chosen to set his name, was Jerusalem, which was, in fact, a city that was set on a hill, was built on Mount Zion, and the temple was then built um, particularly on, uh, on that particular hill, such that Jerusalem itself was to be a beacon to the whole world. And Jerusalem in the Old Testament was often a figure for uh, the people of God. It was the city of God where all the nations were going to be gathering to, to uh, the church one day. You know, you think of the, the passages like um, you know, Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 4. Where uh, in prophesying about the end times, there is a description of Zion, which is lifted up to be the highest of all the mountains. And all the nations come streaming up to this place, which has been elevated above everything else. You think of Isaiah chapter 60, where there is a light that appears over Zion. And the result is that all the nations come from everywhere uh, to gather to this light, to come to hear uh, the word of God and to bring their gifts and to lay them down uh, before God. That, that's the figure that's often used in the Old Testament, that the city on a hill, particularly the city on a hill, Jerusalem, was meant to be the place where all of the nations gather. All of the nations were to be gathered in to worship and praise God. Surely this city, which was built on a hill, was not meant to be hidden uh, at all. 
I think of as well, I think, think of uh, Isaiah chapter 11, where there is, uh, Zion has a, a beacon or a banner, which is put in it, and all the nations come um, and gather to it. Now, if this was true of Jerusalem, think of the connection with the church. Uh, the, the church is, uh, we're told in the book of Hebrews, the heavenly Zion. We, we gather together at the mountain of God, which is even now being lifted up as the highest of all of the mountains. We we, we worship because we are members of not just the Jerusalem, but even the new Jerusalem, which is not built upon the earth, but which comes down from heaven. We are, in a very real sense, even by our creation, by the way in which the church was made in Christ, we are a city which was set on a hill. And all throughout the Bible, there's there's always this, this teaching that it is when the church is lifted up and presented to the world as such that all the nations are going to gather around us. And they're, they're, they're going to gather and they're going to come in. This is the way in which, uh, in which the, the figure is used all throughout the Bible. We are the city which is set on a hill, and we are a light in the world. We are a light in the world because the world is darkness. The world is in darkness, and the world needs light. And so the church is the, these things even by nature. Now, if we were to even go a step further and to ask, how is it that the church is the light of the world? Maybe, in some ways, it's a strange thing to think of the church as the light of the world because um, the other person uh, about whom it is said that he is the light of the world is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So, you know, we have John 1, he, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as um, as the light of the world. We read earlier from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 7, particularly in verse 6, the Lord Jesus Christ, there, there's a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, and he will uh, be raised up so that the salvation might go to the ends of the, of the earth because he will be the light of the world. Uh, part of the, the function there of calling the Messiah the light of the world is that all of the nations will be gathered to him. Um, so the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world, but yet here, and even in other places in the New Testament, it is said not just that Christ is the light of the world, but that the church is the light of the world. The church itself is also the light of the world, not just the Lord Jesus. And the reason this is the case is because the world, the, the church, is united to Christ by faith such that whatever Christ is, we are as well. We are as well. If Christ is the light of the world, then we are the light of the world because we are in him. And this is the way in which, um, the, the reason why the scriptures can describe not just Christ as the light, but even you as the light, and why even as Christ, shining as the light so that all the nations come in, why that goal, that function, that nature must also be true of you. Just as Christ as the light of the world, brings all the nations in because he is the light of the world, so too the church must also have that same function because by nature the church is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, there are the same two implications that come from this. The church has a missionary function in the world. The church cannot retreat into itself, and the church also cannot compromise with the world. If the church begins to look like darkness, it cannot give light. If it looks just like, if it looks just like everything that's around us. Also, though, if the church hides itself by trying to hide its light, though it's a city on a hill, or trying to uh, hide itself under a basket, though it was meant to be put on a lampstand to give light to the whole house, then it is failing in its mission. The, the function of the church, because 
because of the nature, its nature by virtue of its union with the Lord Jesus Christ is to be light in the world and in so doing have all the nations come and to be gathered to it. Now I mentioned that this is very important to remember in light of the context. One of the things that is very clear in the Beatitudes is that in this life, the church will always suffer. We have gone through quite a lot of suffering uh, in this particular year. Many people have had uh, difficult times in, in various ways. And this is something to be expected. The Lord Jesus Christ has said uh, that you will be persecuted for my namesake. You will be poor in spirit. You will mourn in this life. There are all kinds of ways in which in this life you will suffer. And he, he makes a point in the Beatitudes to say, even though you suffer, you will in fact be blessed, but the suffering is in fact a reality. Now, when the church is persecuted, that is in particular, in particular, the time when the church is tempted not to function as salt and light in the world. It's very easy when the world thinks well of the church to preach the gospel to the world. It's very often not the way it happens, though. Very often the world is persecuting the church. And it is in particular when the, church, when, when the world persecutes the church that there is a temptation to retreat into ourselves or to compromise with the world. Now, in our churches, we often pride ourselves in our denomination, something we can give thanks to the Lord for, that we often uh, pride ourselves in uh, theological correctness and being very exact and precise, very nuanced with our understanding of the scriptures. And so we can say, you know, we've, we've not given in like, you know, some of, of the other denominations that fell off in the 20th century. And even the history of our church was, um, you know, we, we broke off from another Presbyterian denomination because of, uh, because of that denomination nation giving in to the ways of the world and compromising, losing its ability to be salt and light in the world. Even though that's true, I do think there is a temptation, more of a temptation in our churches to retreat. And this is where we, we need to be careful. Just because we are not compromising with the world does not mean we are actually functioning as salt and light in the world. We, 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 can, we can pride ourselves on uh, not having given in, and we pray that the Lord to the Lord that we would never give in in terms of um, what we believe and our understanding of the Scriptures. We do not compromise with the world. However, if we do not put the light before others— if, if we retreat into ourselves and we are not engaging the world with the gospel, even when the world opposes the things that we believe, then we are still failing in the same way as those who compromise. We are failing in that we are not being salt and light. And, and in some ways, it can be uh, just as bad to retreat into ourselves and uh, not to put the gospel before others, as it is to compromise with the world. In both cases, in terms of th these metaphors that are used, this teaching, we would not be acting as salt and light. Uh, and this is where it, it does take courage and boldness. It does mean, if we are going to be salt and light in this world, that we will be opposed. The part of the, the, of the temptation to retreat into ourselves is because if we, we know that if we do that, we'll probably be left alone. But we'll be left alone at the expense of being able to, to, to fulfill the function for which God has made us. That which we are by nature. It would be like taking our light and putting it under a basket just for the sake of not offending those who want to stay in the dark. Uh, that is not the way the church is to act. We are to engage the world with the gospel. And it is because of what the church is that then Christ goes on to explain the meaning of the metaphors and to give an exhortation in verse 16 to say what the church does. Notice what he says. 
and light of the church being salt and light in the world, you are therefore to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. If you are light by nature, which you are, which is what, what the Lord Jesus Christ says, you are salt, you are light, then here's the command. You must act in light of that reality. Uh, it's very similar to a, the, the way that the, the Bible describes any number of doctrines. Think, for, for instance, of sanctification. You are holy. You've been made holy by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been set apart for God. And if that's true, then you must actually act in a holy way in this life. You must actually live a holy life. This is the way that Romans 6 is organized. You've, you've died with Christ. You've been raised with him. You've, and when you did that, you died to sin and you're, now you live to God. That's a reality for you. And because of that, let you, pre- you must present your members. You actually must do something. You must present your members as being alive to God and dead to sin. Because you are a certain thing in Christ, therefore you must act in accordance with that. Think of uh, Leviticus 19, that you must be holy even as God is holy. God is holy. You have been set apart for him, therefore you are holy. And if that is true, that must uh, have great implications for the things which you do. You must act in a holy way. And so Jesus says, not only are you light, but because you're light, you must actually act as light in the world. Now, what does it mean actually to let your light shine before men? Up to this point, Christ has been using metaphors to describe the nature of the church and what the church is to do. But what does it actually mean to let your light shine before men? Well, notice what is said in verse 16. It said first in the, this first clause, using the metaphor, let your light shine before men. But then the metaphor is then explained in the next clause where the, the purpose is given. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your light would be the expectation in terms of the metaphor. But Christ says that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It is the good works of the saints, which is the light that they shine before men. Now, if you were to ask them the next question, well, what are the good works that are being referred to in the context? Well, it would be everything that the Lord Jesus Christ has described a Christian being in the Beatitudes at least. Uh, notice you, it means that you are poor in spirit, that you are one who mourns, you are meek, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you are merciful to others, you are pure in heart, you are a peacemaker, and you are, by implication, persecuted for righteousness' sake. You, you do all of those things in the context of the world. You let your good works in that way because of who you are by nature. You let those shine before men so that, so that, so that others may see those things and praise the Father in heaven. Now, I think in the context of the whole sermon, it actually goes beyond this as well. Because this is the, the great explanation of what it looks like to live the Christian life in all of the Bible. It is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ here. And so it also means all the other things that he's going to say in terms of our relationship to others, uh, that we, in terms of uh, murder, that we don't hate, but we actually love our enemies, uh, that we um, live uh, chaste and holy lives uh, in terms of our sexual purity and conduct, Uh, all of the things that are said all throughout the rest of chapter five, even the way in which we, uh, the way in which we pray. Our relationship to God as others see these kinds of things, the way we fast, the way we give, um, the way in which we do not worry about uh, what's going to come in this in this uh, world, but we trust in God, the way in which we uh, do not judge others, lest we be judged, but we uh, look at ourselves first and we uh, humbly try to help people through uh, whatever problems they have, the way in which we pray 
seek and knock. All of these things, the way in which we live the Christian life, are the good works that Christ is saying, let those things so shine before men that when they see these these true acts of faithful service to God, that they are led by them to worship God. Let others see your good deeds and so praise the Father in heaven. Now, uh, a question could then come up. Um, doesn't Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, doesn't it teach that we are not to let others see our good deeds? Um, you, know, the, you know, in the beginning of chapter 6, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you give, let, let it be done in secret. When you pray, let it be done in secret. When you fast, you know, make sure that nobody can tell that you're fasting. Um, how is it that we are to let our lights shine before men so that others see our good works on the one hand, and yet in chapter 6, we are to make sure that nobody knows, not even our left hand knowing what our right hand is doing? What is going on with these things? In terms of the answer, the, the, the answer comes when we consider the purpose and the goal. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, Christ is saying you are always to act in terms of your piety towards God in such a way that you are never seeking. You are never seeking your own praise. Very often we do good works, particularly in front of not the world so much, but actually other believers. We, we, there can be a temptation to do our good works in front of other believers such that then those people think that we are great, that we are holy, that we uh, have a great relationship with God, that everything is going well for us spiritually, and that we are to be admired and praised because of, of our great piety. Here, it's not so much what we do in front of the church, but what we do in front of the world, not for the sake, not for the sake of being praised by the world ourselves, but simply for the sake of the world praising God. So there's there's two differences then. There's a difference in terms of uh, who we're seeking who, who we're doing these works in front of, the world versus the church. Uh, the world, if we, if we seek to, to do our good deeds in front of the world for the sake of praise from the world, that'll surely backfire on us. The, the, the world is not very interested in uh, praising us because of our prayer life or the way in which we, we read the Bible. Um, but it is, that in fact, the believers, other believers, when they see uh, the good things that we do, if we do it in order to be seen by them, uh, then they will actually, there could be a temptation for them to say, you know, this person is so great, and this or that. The other main difference, though, is the aim. In the one hand, the aim is the glory of self, and the other, it's the glory of God. And that's really the, the, the foundation, the, the foundational difference between the two. Um, if you do your good deeds in order to be seen by other people, by other people within the church in particular, uh, for the sake of them praising you, then then uh, you have particularly, uh, you are not following the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6. However, if you do good deeds in front of others, not so much for the sake of, of, of receiving praise from them, but even if they may persecute you for the things that you do, you still do them anyway so that they could become worshipers of God and glorify God. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of here. Uh, there, can, there is a, a, a parallel idea that's, that's, uh, said, that's found in, particularly in Matthew chapter 25 where we have the probably the clearest um, 
expression of what the final judgment will be like, where there is those who are on Christ's right hand and there's the left, there's the sheep and the, and the goats. And the believers in, in particular, they have um, no idea um, of the kinds of good deeds that they have done for, for Christ. And he says, you know, um, you're going to come in because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was uh, naked, you clothed me, all these things. And, and they, they'll say, you know, Lord, when did we, when did we do any of these things for you? We, we haven't done any of this. And then Christ says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you've done done uh, for me. But the, in that particular passage there, those who are doing the good deeds are very much unaware of the way in which these good deeds could in any way be counted as anything before Christ on the last day. They're just, you know, I was just doing what I'm supposed to do. And surely I would never uh, try to say that I ought to be led into heaven, so to speak, because I have done these uh, these things. I've only done my duty, as it says in, in Luke chapter uh, 17. There is kind of an un, un, a lack of awareness of about the, um, about the way in which these things could be considered even um, good before the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's not to, not to say that the the, the te- that people would be ignorant of the teaching of the way in which Christ accepts good works, but it's rather just to say that the focus is always on the glory of God and not self, and that's that's the the, the main idea all throughout Matthew twenty five. There, if the focus is on bringing glory to God, there is just simply a lack of awareness or even caring about the way this appears to others. I am simply going to act for the sake of the glory of God and uh, let it let anything else happen even if it means persecution I will act for that end now this is of course the purpose which is given in Matthew 16 you let your light so shine before men that others may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven this is a great test to see whether or not the things that you do are in fact being done for the right reasons. Think of the things that you do that others maybe know you do. Do you often receive praise from them? And do you enjoy receiving praise for them for that reason? Or can you see because of the way in which you interact with others around you that they have grown in their love for God, that they actually praise God more because of the things that you've done? And is that the main goal for all the things that you do. Do you like it more when people say, you know, you just, you're such a a faithful person? Or do you like it more when people say, when you can see in people's lives that maybe because of a word of encouragement you've given or something that, that you've done, that they are remaining faithful to God themselves, that they are abounding in thanksgiving to God. Which one are you uh, most excited about and which one do you pursue? The natural result of the church acting within its nature is that the Father will be praised, not the church. The Father himself will be praised. And this is something then to think about, even as I mentioned, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about the way in which the Christian life should be lived. As you think about even the ways in which you fall short and which you need to repent before God, and even in the ways in which you're pleading with him to, to help you to grow in these things, think about praying to God that he would enable you to grow in grace, not for the sake of yourself, but even for this sake, for, for the end that when God answers this prayer and causes you to grow, that it will actually lead to his own praise. 
and that this is the thing you are seeking. Lord, may it be when I see that my righteousness falls short of, of even the Pharisees, which Christ says it must be even above them to get into the kingdom of heaven. May it be that my righteousness would be increased that others may see it and praise you in heaven. May it be when I see hatred in my heart that I put that sin to death so that when others see my love for, 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 for the, the people around me, that they praise your name in heaven. When other people see me loving my neighbor as myself, when other people see my, my prayer life, not that I would be praised by them at all, but Lord, that your name would be praised because other people would see that you are a faithful God to whom we can pray and, and know that, that you hear our prayers. May it be as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that you seek to grow in grace for the sake of the increase of the glory of God. This is the nature of the church. The nature of the church is to glorify God. Whenever the church does not pursue this great aim and this great goal, the church will run into problems. It is foolishness. It is like trying to use bad salt and trying to light a lamp and then hide the light. Uh, but whenever the church functions correctly, it is always for the sake of the glory of God. And so the question to ask, brothers and sisters, is, is your life foolish in this way? Are, are you seeking something that's contrary to the reason for which you were made? Remember, this is even uh, in our, the very first catechism question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our purpose in life is to glorify God. And if we are not acting in accordance with the way that God has made us, with the function that he's given to us by our creation, then we will uh, be good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. May God grant us the grace to be salt and light in the world. Let's pray. Father, How we do thank you for your word, which teaches us these things. Lord, how we confess that very often we have not acted as we ought. That though we were made to be salt and light by nature, Lord, we have very often failed in these things. That we do give into the temptation to retreat into ourselves or even to compromise. Father, forgive us of these things and help us not for our own sakes, O Lord, but for yours. Help us to live more faithfully to you, that your name might be praised. May it never be said, O Lord, as the Apostle Paul claims of the Jews, that, that, that your name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. May it be rather, O Lord, that your name is praised among all the nations because of us. May your light shine in us to the end that you receive the glory and praise that is due to you for all that you have done for us in your son, Jesus. For we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, please give us a five-star review as this will help make the word of God preached more available to others. Also, if you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com.